If you want to get someone to do something, it's smart to make them think it was their idea all along. Politicians, as we know, are not without ego, and I'm sure they think all of their brilliant faults are entirely their own. But there are armies of people who want to influence them, key among those being lobbyists. In 2022, $3 billion was spent on lobbying in the United States. But who are these people, what are they doing, and how do they influence the way the government is run? Here to discuss this with me for The Bunker USA is Amy McKay, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Exeter. Hi, Amy. Thanks for joining me for The Bunker. Hi, Jacob. It's a pleasure to be here. Not someone I thought I'd be quoting today, but Ayn Rand once said, lobbying is the activity of attempting to influence legislation by privately influencing the legislators. It is a result and creation of a mixed economy of government by pressure groups. Its methods range from mere social courtesies and cocktail party or lunch on friendships to favours, threats, bribes and blackmail. Amy, was that a, an accurate summary of what lobbying is? Uh, I do, actually. That's a, a pretty pretty good summary. I think uh, there's a bit of myth in there in that uh, today the lobbyists are not allowed to take members of Congress or their staff out for lavish meals or on trips. That's a thing of the past, uh, and it, it was never really uh, supposed to be allowed. But the rest of it, and the bribes are not allowed either, of no. course. Uh, the bribes are, uh, we don't talk about uh, bribes really in, in the literature or uh, certainly in, in Congress, where I've spent some time as well. But something not being allowed, does that mean it, it doesn't happen? Or do some of these things perhaps happen just a little surreptitiously? I'm sure there's some of that surreptitious uh, going on, but not a lot because uh, Congress today is so politicized and uh, polarized that people are always on guard for being caught saying or doing something that they don't want to be publicized. So I, I think it's sort of a self-reinforcing system of ethics. Who are lobbyists? Who are these people? I think of sort of Remy Danton in House of Cards, these really slick operators who are incredibly charismatic, going around being quite glamorous, telling politicians what to do, sort of by hook or by crook. Is that accurate? What are these people like? Yeah, some of them are like that, exactly, especially the uh, firm lobbyists who work on contract for a lobbying firm and then get clients but there are also a, a notable contingent of people who lobby on behalf of the organization they work for. So they might represent to the Sierra Club or Greenpeace or Action Against Climate Change, and, and they aren't quite so slick. But definitely there's a <laughs> contingent of those slick corporate lobbyists who are masters at uh, remembering people's middle names and their wives' names or husbands' names and their dogs' names and things like that, <laughs> that that make politicians feel flattered and comfortable. In what sort of fields do these people congregate mainly now? I know you mentioned, you mentioned climate change activists and people pushing for that, which maybe in the past wouldn't have been a thing. Are we seeing a shift from maybe kind of oil and tobacco lobbyists to, as you say, climate lobbyists being a dominant thing now? Oh, I'm afraid not. No matter how you measure it, it's it's about two thirds and sometimes as high as uh, three quarters of all lobbyists are representing business. That's because they have the money to pay people to lobby full time for uh, the businesses that they represent, whereas the nonprofit groups are by definition non, uh, non-profit seeking and uh, don't have those same level of resources. Do we have an idea of how many people are are working in the lobbying industry, as it were? Uh, Yeah, there are uh, about 16,000 
that are registered at a given moment. And then according to uh, some work by Lapira and Thomas, there are at least that many uh, who work as lobbyists but aren't registered. And they work for firms typically, and they don't have to register because they don't go to Capitol Hill and talk to uh, members of Congress, or they do those things, but less than 20% of their time. So there's a, a huge group of what they call shadow lobbyists. But these are tens of thousands of, of people. Uh, there's something like 70 lobbyists for every single member of Congress. So they are very dominant in, in Washington and on Capitol Hill and, and just everywhere. Does it go down into local politics as well? I mean, at the state level, are you seeing governors be lobbied just as much as you're seeing representatives and uh, senators? That's right. I keep talking about Congress, but it's really quite similar across state capitals. How does one get into being a lobbyist? So are there, is it, do you get former politicians? Are they people who are kind of like the equivalent to special advisors that we have here? Would they, they perhaps work for someone and make a load of connections, then move to go and work for a firm? How does that... How does that slipstream work? Yeah, that's that's very common. It, the most common thing is to get a job as a as a young person in the office of a legislator. Later, after a few years of working really hard for not that much money, then they uh, jump to K Street, where the lobbying firms are, or they sometimes work directly for organizations. So that's the number one criterion, and another is that that many of them are lawyers and jumped straight from a legal career. Is it an issue when we see inexperienced people go into positions of political power? Because I I think of lobbying largely as a negative thing, and that might be because of the sort of films I've watched and the sort of TV show I watch. But then there's also a counterpoint that if you have a very new and inexperienced congressperson who doesn't know how things work, it's useful for them to have people who, who do around them. But is that an unfortunate loophole that you are then getting people who they don't know how the system works? So it can start off as maybe an innocent connection that someone's showing them who they should go and speak to. And then they start saying, and this is what you should speak to them about. Yes, I see. So uh, I would say definitely the lobbyists play a role in influencing members of Congress, especially those who are newer to the game. And I think uh, it's a good observation to, to note that the more junior people meet more with lobbyists. That's something I have found, whereas the senior members of Congress are busy working on legislation and they uh, don't have as much time to meet with lobbyists and they don't have much incentive to meet with lobbyists. And in, in my book, I compare uh, two senators from the same state of the same party, but one, Max Baucus, was very senior and was writing healthcare legislation uh, as head of the finance committee. And the other, John Tester, was a, a freshman and wasn't on important committees and met all the time with groups from Montana, whereas Baucus met primarily with national groups and was really uh, fairly limited in the number of meetings he would take with those people. How well is this all documented and recorded? And could you talk me for a little bit of what the what the regulation is there and how how well do you think it how well do you think it works as well it's very well documented compared to most other countries i would say it is the best documented lobbying scene in in the world but we don't know what they're saying in meetings most of the time those aren't minuted they're not put on uh, transcribed or anything like that and the people in the room know uh, but the the public doesn't 
Some things like those meetings data that I mentioned are put up voluntarily by members of Congress, but typically members don't put any kinds of details about who they're meeting with unless they want to make a, a point about how they're spending their time. With lobbying and what they're what they're discussing, is there maybe a, a counterpoint here that essentially anyone at any point who is speaking to a politician might be somewhat lobbying them? So, you know, Joe Biden's wife is a is a teacher, and I'm sure they have conversations over dinner where she suggests where where he should be putting his focus when it comes to to education for the country. Is the did the phrase lobbying get a an inherently negative connotation when actually it's just quite difficult that if people have power, then people are going to try and get them to do stuff, aren't they, whether they're a lobbyist or not. So it can all be quite a grey area, really, when it comes to anyone speaking to a politician. Well, yeah, but the rules are fairly clear and very well followed. Um, Personal relationships that pre-exist one's government appointment uh, don't count as lobbying. If there's a grey area, like uh, I know a congressional staffer who was dating lobbyists. Now, they met before either one of them was in Washington, but when he decided to propose to her, he had to get ethics approval to give her a very <laughs> uh, expensive present in the form of a, an engagement ring. I think uh, lobbying in that sort of uh, colloquial way is not the way that the literature and, this, and the scholarly people talk about it. It's also not really the way that people in, in Congress talk about it. That would be called something like persuasion or just normal conversation. Of course. Does it become a problem, though, then when we are having celebrities become politicians like Donald Trump, for example, that it then becomes hard to say who is lobbying them because they can quite easily go, well, I know everyone. I'm incredibly famous. <laughs> These were my friends before I before I arrived here. So they couldn't possibly be officially lobbying me. Well, that's true. They they are being influenced all the time, or at least people are trying to influence them. If they're talking about current government policy that's being considered, then then they have to follow certain rules, um, and if they don't have a pre-existing relationship. But I don't necessarily think that's bad, because uh, everybody needs input from time to time, and lobbyists are experts in their field, and members of Congress have to be experts in lots of fields. Mm. And so lobbyists provide needed information. They also provide solutions to problems rather than just talking about the problem. And those solutions are often based on their understanding of of the laws that exist and the laws that are needed. So I think lobbying does get a a bad rap and that it should be maybe called information gathering or opinion gathering. Can that be a bit of an inherent flaw in the system, though? I mean, there there are hundreds of members of Congress. You would hope that between them they would probably have the vast majority of the expertise they need or they would have the resources to be able to go and get that information objectively. Is that a problem that isn't that there isn't necessarily the links between government and experts in an objective manner? Yes, other countries have ways that are far more robust of interfacing government actors with industry actors uh, in a, a transparent and objective way and the U.S. does this too, but it tends to happen in, in the bureaucracy, whereas uh, Congress is full of politicians who want to make themselves look good. And so from their point of view, it's not necessary always to become uh, an expert in all areas. In fact, there are a lot of people, they tend to be Republican, who, who think government is, is not very useful. And so why would they try to make a study of any 
particular thing that government does or should do. Uh, They would rather just minimize government. What shifts have you have you seen in recent years around lobbying? I mean, you mentioned uh, particularly among Republicans there, and I've spoken to people in the past about just how much the the Republican Party has changed lately. How much has that shift in the the political landscape changed the way in which lobbyists interact with politicians? Well, I, I think despite maybe conservatives becoming slightly more conservative and Democrats becoming slightly more liberal, the world of lobbying hasn't changed that much. Um, lobbyists try to uh, lobby both sides often, especially corporate lobbyists, and so they don't want to uh, favor one side or the other. In terms of shifts, I would say one that we're seeing on the horizon is this new shift to AI and whether lobbyists might be able to use chat GPT and others like it to imitate a real-life lobbying campaign that actually has very few people involved in it. But my answer to that would be that while in the pre-internet age and as recently as 10 years ago, it was a tool that members of Congress could learn what, what interest groups care about, what the public cares about by counting the number of letters or emails or phone calls that they were getting that were maybe pro or con some proposal. But today they're more savvy and don't just count. They try to uh, learn who the players are and what those players have to say rather than just counting them. And for that kind of content, the AI producers would not change the system, I think. Yeah, would AI be quite a, a sort of blunt a blunt tool in order in order to do that? I suppose sort of pumping out thousands and thousands of tweets, say, might make politicians think differently, but as you say, be quite be quite easy to detect as not not sincere. Yeah, that's right. In the in the previous era, they sent mass postcards that all looked alike and just said <laughs> different people's names on them. And that was not terribly effective then. And I think it wouldn't be terribly effective now to uh, to imitate that using uh, AI. Has tech democratized lobbying somewhat, though? I mean, ordinary people can do things which look more like lobbying than than ever before, I suppose. I remember seeing uh, there was a, a Donald Trump rally where a load of young people coordinated on TikTok to buy tickets for it to sort of make sure it looked empty. And that's slightly different to to lobbying policy, but it shows that ability to use social media to create real-life direct action. Has that has that leveled the playing field a little bit and allowed those players who don't have quite so much money, like tobacco companies, for example, to compete with those, those sort of institutions? I think it might in some settings. I think maybe in, in state legislatures where that are less professionalized, that they might be persuaded by masses of people who are all saying the same thing. I think in in the U.S. Congress, though, the currency is still face-to-face conversations between lobbyists and staff and members of Congress. And so uh, I don't see that as becoming any different, really, than than it has been in the past. Mm. So the best way to communicate with them is face-to-face. Also, they're politicians, so they, they like <laughs> interacting with people. And so I think that has not really changed as a result of technology. Could that change as politicians uh, slowly get younger? I mean, you're looking at people like AOC, who's in her 30s compared to Joe Biden. I can see why 
he might be more inclined to face-to-face conversation. But more often now when I'm watching CPAC, you're seeing members of Congress on their phone, on their mobiles. Could that could that shift as they start to get younger and we see the the first Gen Z Congress people come through? Sure, it, it might it might shift. Um, but I wouldn't say politicians are getting younger. AOC is a bit of an outlier and the mm. average age of members of Congress is 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 senators or, or past retirement age. So uh, they're not younger yet, but we do know that the the younger ones are more comfortable with the technology and that they are members are very conscious of their image. What I would be interested in is how the lobbyists, what are they lobbying for? I think people like AOC are trying to make the system better and take advantage of government, make government do better things for people and take care of people who fall through the cracks of society. Mm. And I think there's a, a, a much more liberal undertone to the Gen Z people who think of being gay is just a totally normal thing, uh, as opposed to a couple of decades ago when the, the generation that's now still in power uh, didn't believe in, in gay marriage, let alone trans rights. So I think as politicians, the newer, younger ones, uh, become more dominant, we'll see, I think, a turn toward more liberal policies in the U.S. Lately, what what lobbying wins, let's call them, have you have stood out to you? Have you noticed any examples of lobbying which is clearly being really effective lately? Whenever Congress is about to do something that a huge number of lobbyists don't like, Congress will tend to not do the that thing. So when it uh, was trying to stop internet piracy by basically tamping down on sharing of information and data and content, the internet platforms really rose up and and rebelled and got all their users to do the same. And Congress totally dropped the policy. They had no idea what they were about to do and how it might influence um, people other than the Hollywood uh, filmmakers that wanted to to make more money. Uh, Another example is in the healthcare debate, healthcare companies being represented by pharma and the doctors and the hospitals and those what we call peak associations got deals with the Obama administration and some people in, in Congress that said, basically, we will support your bill if you limit your Medicare tax cuts, um, not tax, but Medicare cuts uh, by a certain amount. And they basically talked numbers until they came up with a mutually agreeable number. So I think lobbying did work in that case. But also, if the administration had not engaged with those organizations the way it did, the bill would not have passed. So lobbying is always like that. It has some benefits and it has some dangers and threats, and it can't really be considered good or bad. Is is lobbying, do you think, better at stifling things and blocking things than it is generating new ideas? Yes, I don't think lobbying generates much in the way of new ideas, uh, but it does uh, can create public outcry about something that Congress is about to do that uh, the public thinks is bad. The other secret to what lobbyists do is most of them, most of the time, are not trying to pass laws or stop laws from being passed. Most of them are trying to get what I call micro-legislation into the law. That is, they want to carve out parts of legislation and by doing that, they get tax breaks, they get laws that are more favorable to them. If a regulation is about to come into effect that would hurt them, they try to 
delay it as much as possible. And they're doing all of this out of the scope of, of what people are seeing. Overall, does lobbying have a, a bigger or smaller impact than the, the ordinary person might seem to, to believe, does it appear to you? I think, yeah, I think there are uh, so many examples of corporate interests getting bits of micro legislation into laws that, that chip away at government spending, that, that cost taxpayers money, that benefit companies and help contribute to the uh, rampant income inequality that is present in the U.S. and elsewhere. And one reason they can do that is because they're allowed to give campaign contributions mm. to members of Congress. And they're not supposed to do it in the very same meeting where they request a piece of legislation, but they are allowed to interact later and to donate money and to get their members or supporters or employees to donate money. And they're allowed to host fundraising events for members of Congress and spend unlimited sums on outside spending. And the, the amount of money that's sloshing around really in Washington and state capitals gives lobbyists an advantage over uh, the average person. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. The link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me for the Bunker USA. The Bunker was presented by Jacob Jarvis. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieburn, group editor, Andrew Harrison, and theme tune is by Jade Bailey. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 